So truth in advertising. This will not be the shortest introduction that I've ever done here at CBC. I plan to take a little bit of time. Uh, we were out of Galatians last week. Uh, we were out of Galatians in part for a few weeks to do a, a sermon series on marriage that we trust was useful. So I don't plan right now to give a flyover of the entire letter, uh, but I do plan to just frame our conversation, our time today, in looking at Galatians chapter 6, verses 6 through 10. And I want to just touch on some things that we've considered throughout our time in Paul's letter to the Galatian Christians. So what makes Christianity utterly unique in the scope of world religion? What is it about Christianity that makes it utterly unique in the scope of world religion? We've considered the fact that it is not Christianity's moral code. It is not Christianity's morality that makes it utterly unique. Now, yes, it's true that God's law applied at the heart level is the greatest standard of righteousness in the world. Absolutely. Because it is not just mere outward righteousness. It is righteousness at the thought level, at the desire level, at the heart level. That's true. And at the same time, what makes Christianity utterly unique is not its morality, it is its story. The story of Christianity is what makes it unique. It is a story of redemption, put simply. It is a story of the one true and living God who created everything that is out of nothing. He spoke it into existence. He said, let it be, and it was. And He, as the crown of His creation, created human beings uniquely in His image. And He gave us, in Adam and in Eve, the first two human beings, He gave the human race a charge. He made a covenant of works, so to speak, with Adam in saying, do these things, cultivate this land, fill the earth, subdue it, but don't eat of that tree. And we know in the third chapter of the Bible, written by Moses, we know that our first parents, Adam and Eve, transgressed that covenant. They broke that covenant with the Lord. And because of that sin, that original sin, all of the human race and the creation along with us have been plunged into ruin and devastation and corruption. And so this explains everything hard in the world. It explains everything evil in the world. It explains your heart and mine. It explains how we can have good in us in that we are made uniquely in God's image and we still bear that image. And at the same time, we are all capable of extraordinary evil. And we don't have to be taught to sin. It's as natural as breathing because of the corruption that we have inherited from our first parents. And so God, in that very chapter of Scripture, Genesis chapter 3, He made a covenant of redemption with Adam and Eve. The covenant of works had been broken. So by works, no man would be saved any longer. But God promised one who would come to crush the head of the serpent, the great enemy of humanity. The one who would come to save the human race. None other than Jesus Christ, promised in Genesis chapter 3. And so the rest of the Bible is an unfolding of that great covenant of redemption. In which God has given us His law to tell us how to live, to show us our sin and drive us to the Savior. 
And ultimately, He has promised one who would sit on the throne of David forever. He has promised one who would come, who would succeed in every way that the first Adam failed. The Bible, as we've thought about, is a story of two Adams. The first one in whom we fell, and the second one, Jesus, in whom we find redemption. The great way to see this, one of the great ways I should say to see this, is in an account like the temptation of Jesus in the wilderness, Matthew chapter 4, where Christ finds himself in a wasteland, tempted by Satan, and succeeds where the first Adam had found himself in a paradise, had everything going for him, was tempted and fell. Christ is the new and better Adam come to save the hell-bound man, and the Bible is ultimately about him. It's about how God is working his plan of redemption out and making for himself a people who will worship him and know him and enjoy him and love him forever, all through Jesus Christ. This is a story. This is news. It's happened in time and space. Every other religion in the world will tell you to simply do better. Be good. And things will go well with you. Well for you. When your life on this earth is over. Christianity, the Bible, doesn't teach that. The Scripture does teach us to do good, but the Scripture makes it quite clear that we will not be saved by what we do. We will be saved by what Christ has accomplished. And so that's why my job as the preacher of God's Word, the primary one in our church, is to herald that news every week. To preach the Gospel that what Christ has accomplished is finished. Perfect atonement, perfect righteousness counted to anyone who would ever turn from his or her sin and trust in Christ alone. And then from that conversion moment, from that new birth by the power of God's Spirit, absolutely our lives change and we live differently than we once did. Praise God. And we work from our salvation, not for it. So what then can be said of our works? What then can be said about our works, and even the rewards for them. Because there is talk of that in Scripture. We are told to do good works, and we are told that we will be rewarded for doing them. I've got in my notes, for the note-takers in the room, I've got six really quick bullet points that we can say about our works and the rewards for them. Number one, I mean, what can we say about our works and our rewards for them? First, our works do not earn righteousness or favor before God. They are not meritorious, in other words. Number two, our good works, which God does reward, we do only by His grace. Number three, these good works are the result of our regeneration, our new birth, and our adoption as children of God in Christ. They are the result of it, not the cause. Number four, the good works we do were prepared beforehand by God for us to walk in. So he ordained that they would happen. Number five, our works in and of themselves do not deserve reward. They deserve actually condemnation. I don't know if you've thought about that before. That's because even your best deed and my best 
deed are always tainted with sin. And it's only perfect obedience to the law of God that deserves reward. So, number six. God rewards our good works done through faith in Christ purely out of grace. He rewards our good works done through faith in Christ purely out of grace. He rewards us because our deeds done by faith are genuine, though imperfect. They on their own can't stand. But done in Christ, God says, reward. He is a good God and a gracious God. So when it comes to striving for good works, because I'm doing this, friends, because we're going to be looking at a text today that is full of imperatives. It's full of commands. And we want to think about those commands in light of the gospel that Paul has spilled so much ink in defending. We don't want to just kind of isolate the commands from the gospel. Like, okay, you're saved in Christ, now go do good, and it will go well for you. So when it comes to striving for good works, we need to understand what's really going on. This is a bigger deal than we often realize. One of the things that's going on when we strive after and work for good deeds is that we are fighting an internal war. We are fighting an internal war in striving for good works. That's because our flesh does not want to do good works as God defines them. Now, in our flesh, we may do things that could be seen as good rather than bad in terms of life on earth, no doubt. But in terms of the heart level and the thought level and everything underneath those deeds, our flesh does not want to do good works as God defines them. It is our spirit that wants to do good works. Or more precisely, it is the spirit of God in us that gives us the desire to do good works. So this battle, as we've thought about it, particularly in Galatians 5, verse 17, this internal war and this struggle is real. The flesh against the spirit. And it can only be fought and it can only be won by the power of the Holy Spirit through faith in Christ. Lest we ever be confused when we start to think about striving after good works. The second thing that we can say about what's really going on when we strive for good works is that this is about seeking things that are above, eternal, and not about seeking things that are on earth or temporal. This is about seeking things that are above, not things that are on earth. Think about Colossians chapter 3, verses 1 and 2. Where the same Apostle Paul says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. That's what we're striving for. As we pursue good works, we are striving after heavenly things, eternal things. Things that are above, not things that are earthly and temporal. So friends, with all of that by way of introduction, that was for free. Now if you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, open them up to Galatians chapter 6. We will be looking today, as I've already referenced one time, at verses 6 through 10 
of Galatians chapter 6. And this is the 23rd sermon of 24 through this great letter. Before we go any further, I want to read God's Word for us. If you don't have a Bible with you today, don't sweat it too much. We'll be getting the verses up here on the screen. By the way, though, those cell phones that we told you to silence before the service started, get a Bible app on them. That way you always have the Bible with you. Just a shameless plug there. But now let's look to God's Word. Galatians 6, beginning in verse 6. One who is taught the Word must share all good things with the one who teaches. Do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatever one sows, that will he also reap. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption, but the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we do not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Amen. Thanks be to God for His Word. I have three exhortations for us today. Three exhortations for us to consider. And obviously we will take them one at a time. I'm not going to give them all three right now. So number one, exhortation number one is this. Give generously to the work of the ministry. Give generously to the work of the ministry. Now before I go any further, I want to just go ahead and say that this is maybe one of the most uncomfortable sermons that I have ever preached. I mean, this portion of this message right now. Because you feel at the human level, I do, like this tremendous risk of sounding absurdly self-serving. Because I am the pastor, the primary pastor of this church, and I'm the only one right now who is on the staff. It's kind of a lonely feeling, in a way. But this is the beauty of expositional preaching. Right? We deal with the text, and this is where we find ourselves today. My comfort nor yours matters at all, frankly. So here we are. Let's look at verse 6 together. Paul exhorts the Galatian Christians to be generous to the one who teaches them the Word. You see that. One who is taught the Word must share all good things with the one who teaches. And this would mean their pastor or their pastors. The men who have been set aside by God to preach the word, to shepherd the congregation, and are going to be paid to do that. The Galatians are encouraged to not withhold any good thing from these men who would teach them the word. So I think it goes without much unpacking and explanation from me that it is good to provide generously for pastors. It is good To provide generously for men who give their lives to this, to the teaching of God's word and to the leadership and oversight of the local church. Now, I want to speak to this. I just want to make a few comments. And before I even make these, I I want you to know this. Of course, in saying these things, I will indirectly be speaking about myself. But I have in view God continuing to grow this church and give us a staff in, you know, that will do the work of the ministry, men who will be paid to be pastors of this church. And so my comments now are more for them as I think about those guys, at least as much for them as they are for me. Don't know who they are yet, but I want as much as I can as the lead pastor of this church to serve them well now in helping us think about this. 
So none of what I say about giving to support the work of the ministry should ever be taken to mean that pastors should be paid really well in order to live extravagantly. That, just, that goes without saying, I hope. We're not talking about being a lover of money and seeking all kinds of worldly treasure. We wouldn't get into ministry if that's what we wanted in this life. But just directly speaking, brothers and sisters, it will be of no advantage to you as the congregation. It will be of no advantage, like zero advantage to you to not pay your pastors well. It will profit you on the flip side. You will benefit more than you even know. It will benefit you to pay them well so that they might be freed up to do the work of the ministry. I think that goes without me explaining it very much. It's good for the pastors to be freed up to do the work of the ministry so that they can do that work, but also so that their wives even can be freed up to support them in the work of the ministry. So that their wives and their children might not resent the church. Because my husband, my dad, gets pulled away a lot. It's good that pastors would be freed up to do that work that's valuable. It's a good thing when a congregation provides for their pastor or their pastors to live without unnecessary financial stress. Because, I think this is clear too, there's more than enough responsibility in the task without having to worry about money. We will all profit from paying our pastors well and our staff well. And so, as I've already mentioned, as the Lord continues to grow CBC, I pray by His grace... I will fight vehemently for our staff that they would be supported well because I will be blessed by that and we will be blessed by that. And before we go any further, brothers and sisters, I sincerely, personally, I don't want to make it too personal, but I want it to feel personal. I want to thank each of you for the ways that you give generously to support the ministry of this church. Thank you. Sincerely. We're doing a good thing by God's grace. I believe with all of my heart that the Lord is in this. I see great things happening by the power of God's Spirit in this body of believers. So thank you for giving to support it. And let's do so all the more as we move forward. Let's put our eyes on verse 7 now. Where the Lord, through the Apostle Paul, tells us, Do not be deceived. God is not mocked. For whatever one sows, that will he also reap. You'll reap what you sow. Now, this is, this is where this gets even more interesting. What are the three keys to biblical interpretation? Context, context, and context, right? Often has been said. I'm not the first one to say that. This verse, verse 7, cannot and should not be divorced from the verse that precedes it. So, as we look at it, don't be deceived. God isn't mocked, for you'll reap what you sow. What is in view is the sharing of all good things by the one who has taught the Word with the one who teaches the Word. In other words, this is how we, I want to frame this for our thinking this morning. In other words, if we are stingy with respect to providing for the work of the ministry, if we are stingy, this doesn't just mean money, but it certainly includes that. But if we are stingy with our treasure, with our time, with our talent, with our effort, if we're stingy with that, in providing for the work of the ministry, we should not expect to bountifully reap spiritual blessing. 
And then conversely, on the flip side of that coin, if we are generous with our possessions, with our time, with our talent, our effort, in providing for the ministry of the church, we should expect to reap spiritual blessing from that. Now, we shouldn't view this as some kind of mechanistic transaction with God. Like, I put this in the machine and then this pops out. That's not what we're talking about at all. God does not work like that. Rather, I think we should see this, this word from the Apostle Paul, even this this word of warning. We should see it as a guiding principle. And more importantly, I I would even say as a, a warning that is really mixed with promise from God. That He sees that he knows and that he honors our generosity. And when we think about reaping what we sow, it's important that we would realize that the rewards that we receive, the reaping that will happen, is often something that we don't expect and it's often something that we don't foresee. That's why we've got to divorce this from that kind of, I put this in, I get this out kind of thinking. And at other times, the reaping, the reward that comes, the benefit that comes is not even something that really registers on my radar screen at first. It might be something that's happening that I don't even see for a while. And then it's like, oh, like, that's been really good in my life. And I realize it at some point down the road. And friends, in all of this, as we think about reaping what we sow and being generous, we should be. Right? We should be generous with the things that God has given us. That includes me. That includes my family. We should be generous with the gifts that God has given and be excited and eager to give them away to other people. To share them and to enjoy them with others. That's happening here at CBC and that's a great encouragement to me. May the Lord make it happen all the more. Let's put our eyes on verse 8 though. This is all under that first exhortation. Give generously to support the work of the ministry. You see there in verse 8, that if we sow to the flesh, we will reap corruption from the flesh. And if we sow to the Spirit, we will reap eternal life from the Spirit. Now certainly we could, and this would be biblically faithful, like high, high level, we certainly could take that principle, because it's taught elsewhere in Scripture in a more general way, Right? If you sow to the Spirit, you'll reap eternal life. If you sow and invest in the flesh, that will end in corruption and ruin and devastation for you. That's true. Again, in this particular paragraph, Paul is still talking about this generosity to support the work of the ministry. And so, as we look at the flesh in this context, we would understand the flesh to represent our life here. Earthly things. Temporal stuff, right? That's what the flesh would represent. So, sowing to the flesh in the context of verse 8 of Galatians 6 would be to devote our possessions, our treasure, to the interests and convenience of our lives on earth. It would be to devote our time to the interests and the convenience of our lives on earth. It would be to devote our efforts, our abilities, everything to our convenience and the interests of our lives on earth. And the result we see from the Apostle Paul is that if we do that, if I make a habit of investing my stuff, my time, my effort, my talent into things of this world, 
then I am going to reap corruption from that. It will lead nowhere good, ultimately, for me to do that. It might go okay for a while, right? Because this is one of the great dilemmas of God's people in Scripture. Why do wicked people prosper? Why are they wealthy? Why do they eat well? Why do they seem to have no stress? And I feel like I'm just constantly driving into oncoming traffic. Why is that the case? It might go well for a while. It might, you might, from an earthly perspective, even get away with selfish investment in this life for a lifetime. It can happen. Why? That's, a, that's above my pay grade. It's above yours too. Anybody who comes to you with the answer to that question, run away from him or her as fast as you can. But we know this. God's word is clear. That posture and that kind of life will not end well ultimately. Mark it down. Stand on the word. Remember, these are, these are really strong words. God is not mocked. He's upright. He's just. He's all-knowing. He will administer perfect justice at the end of history. The spirit now, like, so we've talked about the flesh, but as we think about the spirit, like, what does the spirit represent here in verse 8? Again, high level, we could say, yes, sowing to things of the spirit in general, or the Holy Spirit. And that's, I think, basically what Paul is saying, but I want to nuance it a little bit. The spirit in this context would be, if the flesh is life on earth, earthly stuff, sowing to the spirit would be eternal things, heavenly things. Things that are of eternal value. It's about, instead of the earthly life, sowing to the Spirit prioritizes the heavenly one. So, sowing to the Spirit in this context would mean sharing all good things with ministers of the gospel and, where we're going, doing good to others. That's what sowing to the Spirit is. Sharing good things with my pastors, sharing good things with my brothers and sisters, and doing good to others. In other words, the way that I might want to frame this is look at sowing, sowing to the Spirit, look at that as an investment in the things of God by faith. It's an investment in the things of God by faith. As we trust Christ and as we rely upon the Spirit, we invest intentionally in the things of God and the people of God. And we do all of that with an eye toward the heavenly life, not this one primarily. This life matters. We need to be heavenly minded in such a way that we are all kinds of earthly good, right? I mean, and that, those things are not a contradiction. Most often the people who are heavenly minded are the most earthly good. But this is not like, oh my gosh, the world's going to hell and we just need to you know, batten down the hatches and stick our heads in the sand until Christ returns. That's not what we're saying at all. But we live this life with an eye for the eternal life to come. We live with eternity in view. And so if we live this way and we intentionally invest in the things of God and the people of God and sow to the Spirit in that way, we will reap, as you see, eternal life. This will lead to eternal blessedness. This kind of lifestyle. Which brings us now, friends, to exhortation number two. Exhortation number one, give generously to support the work of the ministry. 
Exhortation number two, do not grow weary of doing good. Exhortation number two, do not grow weary of doing good. Put your eyes on verse nine. Paul encourages and exhorts the Galatian Christians in a more broad way here. He says, don't grow weary of doing good, for in due season you will reap the fruit. If you persevere and you don't give up in due time, you will reap the fruit of your doing good. Well, friends, we need this encouragement. At least I do. But we need this encouragement at least for a couple of reasons. One, because we're sinners. So it's very easy, again, natural as breathing, for me to be consumed with me. For you to be consumed with you. Your life, your circumstances. That's what I'm going to invest in, man. Got to prioritize number one here. Make it all about me. So because of that sinfulness and that just absolute holistic self-absorption that we all carry around, We need to be encouraged. Don't grow weary in doing good to other people. Keep it up. Persevere in doing good. But also, we need to be encouraged because we grow weary because we often don't see fruit from our effort, right? So I grow weary in doing good because I'm a sinner, and I grow weary in doing good because I don't see anything good coming of it. I'm working, and I'm working, and I'm just like banging my head against the wall, and it seems fruitless. I trust that I'm not alone. I'm seeing nods in the room. I trust that I'm not alone in feeling like that sometimes. You think, God, like, when are you going to show up and bless this? Right? So we need that encouragement. And Paul gives it to the Galatian Christians and thereby us. He encourages the Galatians, don't grow weary of doing good. It's worth it. You will. You might not be seeing it right now. You might be weary right now. You're not seeing anything good, but I promise you the fruit will come. In due time, the fruit will come. God is good. God is faithful. He will keep His promises. Don't give up. Do not give up. Do all things as unto Him. Because He sees and He knows. He points them, though He does not mention God's name in verse 9. It seems crystal clear as you look at it. You have it in front of you like I do. As you look at it, Paul is pointing the Galatian Christians to the character and the faithfulness of God to undergird their doing good. You will see the fruit. He's pointing them to the reward that will come, but who's going to give that? It's God who will give that. You can trust the Lord. Keep pressing on. And friends, I I trust this is clear to you as you're wrestling with this in your own mind. Doing good like Paul's describing, in the face of apparent fruitlessness, requires much faith. Doing good in the face of apparent fruitlessness requires much faith. Because from a human perspective, it's like, this isn't working out. I'm not seeing the return on my investment. I'm going to invest elsewhere. But faith says, no, I don't see it now, but I know that God is true. And I know that He will bless this and do good things through it. So we press on. Trust in Christ and reliance upon the power of the Holy Spirit and faith in the character of God is absolutely necessary to persevere in doing good. 
In other words, faith is the vehicle through which you do good. Faith is the vehicle through which you do good. Because if you plan to keep on doing good, in the power of your own grit and determination, you'll fail. You will not persevere in doing good. If you plan to keep on doing good in the face of apparent fruitlessness, well, what are you going to do if you're motivated by results? If your motivation is just, I want to see the fruit, man, and that'll encourage me to keep going, what are you going to do when the fruit's not there? If you plan to keep doing good on the fuel of the fruit you see from your efforts, you will fail. You will not persevere in doing good. We must do good by faith as unto God. So we are called by God to do good, not negotiable. It's not an option. We are called to do good works. God prepared them beforehand for us to walk in them. Praise God that He has. So we are called to do good in faith, to God, and then we trust Him with the fruit of that work. We leave the reaping and the timing of that reaping up to God. This is true in every arena of life. Whether this is your marriage, whether this is your job, whether this is parenting your kids, whether this is your education, anything. Pick an arena of your life. You must do all things as unto God first, or you will be perpetually disappointed. Those things in life, ministry, marriage, schooling, parenting, anything, work, they teach you this. Because you're always smacking up against fruitlessness. At some point, you will be. There is great comfort in knowing that God sees everything. God knows everything. And so, what we are called to do, brothers and sisters, is to discharge our duty faithfully. And then we trust the Lord. That's a comfort. To know that I am not in charge of the fruit that my work will bear. It frees me to work and to trust and to pillow my head at night and go to sleep. Let's put our eyes on verse 10. The question is asked, though, but to whom do we do good? To whom do we do good? Paul helps us out. So then, as we have opportunity to everyone, we do good to everyone. All right, that's the first thing we can say. And especially, he says, to those of the household of faith or the household of God. So this is helpful. Very helpful. Using these words along with other words that Paul wrote in his first letter to Timothy, as well as words from the Apostle James, we can start to piece together some structure for our doing good. We know that we are to do good to our families, Paul writes in 1 Timothy. We are to provide for them, care for them. If we don't, we have denied the faith and are worse than an unbeliever. So, like, if you've got a family, which we all do in various ways... We best be doing good unto them, or we do not honor God at all. Also, we know that we are to do good, especially to those of the household of faith, 
In other words, to those in the church. In the context of letters that are written to specific churches, right? To specific Christians, specific churches. We would understand this to tell us primarily that that doing good to those who have the household of faith would be to care for those within our local church. Certainly caring for Christians everywhere, but primarily the ones that you live life with. Do good unto your brothers and sisters. And then finally, within our churches, we are to take special care of widows and orphans. Paul and James tell us that. In other words, we are to take special care for the vulnerable among us, the weak among us. What kind of people are we if we allow the weak and the vulnerable to be just run over and devoured? That is not anything that reflects so terribly on the character of God because He cares for the widow and the orphan, for the fatherless, for the sojourner. And then Paul tells us that we are also, as we have opportunity, that that phrase is important, we do good to all. So it's good to have these handles. This is kind of God. Because, let's be real, there's so much need in the world. There is need everywhere. It's on every street corner, in every dirt path on this planet. There is need. And so it's good to know how we can focus our energy. We focus our energy on our families. We focus our energy on our local church, as I've already said, with a special eye to the vulnerable among us. And then we do good to everyone as we have opportunity. So that, as we have opportunity, just ask yourself some questions. Who are the people that I have opportunity to do good to? Well, think for just a minute. Who has God put in my life? Who has God put in my life? Like the normal rhythms and flows of my week. Who are the people that I see? Who are the people that I spend time with? Who are the people that I run into? Semi-regularly even. That I could do good to? Co-workers. Neighbors. People at the school. People at the coffee shop. People at the gym. People at the dry cleaners. People at your favorite restaurant. Whatever it is. Who has God put in your life that you come across regularly. Think in those terms and say, you know what? I'm going to make an intentional investment in these people. I'm going to pick a few of them. I'm going to start there. Like, I'm not going to try to do good to the whole world tomorrow lest I be overwhelmed and do nothing. I'm going to try to do good to these two, three people over the next three weeks. It's helpful. Think also, how can we, CBC, how can we care for the community that we're in? God has put us here in this particular place, at this particular time, to do good. So how can we, corporately, and then even as we scatter, how can we do good unto people in this community that we see? It's a practical question, right? We, as a church, are aiming to systematically, like programmatically invest our energy in some things, like the least of these ministries, downtown Asheville, feeding people who don't have food to eat on Saturday mornings, donating clothing and sleeping bags and shoes and all kinds of things that are needed. We have participated the last couple of summers very pointedly in the Feed the Need program where we provide food for children in the area during the summer when they don't have much to eat. Other things that we have done and may do again, Operation Christmas Child. In the near future, we're going to be thinking more specifically about mission trips and how we can start doing more of those kinds of things as a church. There will be opportunities to do good 
to people, locally and abroad, people that we will meet and people that we might not. And we praise God for those opportunities. Let's take advantage of those. God has given us plenty of opportunity. This moves us now, friends, to our final exhortation, exhortation number three. This is implied, I think, in everything that Paul has written. And I I want to give it to you as, as your pastor. Exhortation number three, do not be short-sighted. Do not be short-sighted. So exhortation one, give generously to support the work of the ministry. Exhortation two, do not grow weary of doing good. Exhortation three, do not be short-sighted. So notice with me in verse eight, you see that when we sow to the Spirit, we will reap from the Spirit eternal life. And then in verse 9, look at the words the Apostle Paul uses, and let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap. In other words, the blessing that we reap from sowing to the Spirit and doing good will come ultimately in eternity, right? And even in this life, the blessing that we reap from sowing to the Spirit will come over the long haul. The blessing happening immediately, I would say, is the exception, not the rule. God has some short arcs of fulfilling His promises, and He has many longer ones. I think for many of us, we can fall into a, a trap that I, that I almost like to call uh, Christian karma kind of thinking. Christian karma. Ron and I were talking about this the other morning over coffee. This is the kind of thinking that goes something like this. It's like, okay, let's take the subject matter of today, giving. Well, I've been giving really well to the church. I've been sacrificing a lot more than normal and I'm giving generously to the church. So I'm confident that like next month I'm, I'm going to get that raise. I've been giving generously to support the work of the ministry, and so I'm confident that within the next 12 months or so, our financial platform and outlook is just going to completely change. And my circumstances are going to look very different. I'm sure of that. Or, maybe hitting even closer to home for some, we have this temptation to think that, okay, like, I, I overslept this morning and I, I didn't get time in the Bible today, and now my whole day is wrecked from Jump Street. Like, I've got no chance today. I may as well just go back to bed. Like, it's not going to go well. And of course, I say this, I always feel like I have to qualify things. Read your Bible. Read your Bible. Get the Bible app on your phone, like I already said. Take it everywhere. Listen to the Bible. And don't confuse the issue. Reading your Bible every day will bless you beyond belief. It will bless your life in ways that you cannot even fathom right now. And reading your Bible in the morning does not guarantee that that day will go well circumstantially. You may have the greatest quiet time that you've had in two years and get into a wreck on the way to work. And God is good. It's this nonsense of like, oh, you know, like my day is just my day, my week, my month. Oh, I know this is going to go bad because of X. Stop that. We've got to have that foolishness wrestled from our hands. We read the Bible and pray and apply means and live by faith for the long haul in this life and for eternity. 
And God is good and faithful and true and He will bless every minute that you spend reading His Word in ways that we can't even comprehend today. But it probably will not be in your circumstances. We're not promised circumstantial ease and blessing in Scripture. If anything, as followers of Jesus Christ in this life, in a world that hates Him, we are promised to suffer, not to prosper circumstantially. Suffering and then glory, right? That's the pattern. Suffering and then glory. The cross, then the crown. The cross and then glory. It was the pattern for our Lord Jesus and it is the pattern for us, His disciples, as we follow Him. We might sow faithfully to the Spirit and have a circumstantially very hard life. Like, own that. You might sow faithfully to the Spirit and your circumstances might not get any better. Over the long haul, I promise you it will be worth it even in this life. Your faith will be strengthened. Your love will be grown. Your joy will be increased. Paul says, I have learned to be content in all things. How'd that happen? Not because things were going well, but because God grew him over time. Because he sowed to the Spirit. God is, as I've already said, faithful and true, and we will reap the fruit of what we've sown in eternity and over the course of years and decades, not days and weeks, most often. Sometimes you will reap immediate fruit. And it's like, holy smokes. Like that thing I read or this particular thing that, you know, that I've been doing or whatever, it's born this immediate fruit. Praise God. But then you also are mature enough and you have the long game in view enough that you're not knocked off your horse with every difficult day or every difficult week that you encounter. So let's not be short-sighted and let's not be mechanistic. It's kind of, I put the coin in and out pops the, the snack or whatever. Like, that's not how this works. We're sowing to the Spirit for eternity and for the long term of our lives. And as I've said, in many cases, we might not see the fruit of our sowing to the Spirit or our doing good in obvious ways. And friends, there will be times... Not only do we not see it at all in this life, there will be situations with lives in this room where you will sow to the Spirit and you will do good and you will not see the fruit of that in your lifetime. Charles Bridges, who was a pastor, an Anglican minister in England, he wrote a great book called The Christian Ministry, amongst other things. And in that work, he says to men who would aspire to the ministry that the seed that you sow might lie dormant under the earth until you do. And then it will spring up. We have to own that as believers. That we do work for eternity and we do work for even the long term here on earth regardless of whether we see the fruit or not. Friends, as I land the plane here for us, another way to describe the short-sighted perspective that I want us to avoid, that I think Scripture is clear that we must avoid. Another way to describe that short-sighted perspective is that it is earthbound. The short-sighted perspective is earthbound. 
It is one of the great problems in the church today is that so much of what we see and are concerned for is this life, not the next one. The short-sighted perspective is often about circumstances and it is always about the here and now. But remember your theology. Remember your theology. Remember the Gospel. Remember the point of the Bible. God's plan of redemption through Christ will ultimately be fulfilled in the new heavens and the new earth. And we live accordingly. Listen to these words. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. And I saw the holy city, New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride adorned for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. He will dwell with them, and they will be his people, and God himself will be with them as their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes, and death shall be no more. Neither shall there be mourning, nor crying, nor pain any more, for the former things have passed away. And he who was seated on the throne said, Behold, I am making all things new. Also he said, Write this down, for these words are trustworthy and true. And he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. Through Christ, God is making all things new. Brothers and sisters, in light of that reality, in light of who God is and the promises that He's made, sow to the Spirit. Invest intentionally in the things of God and the people of God. Don't grow weary of doing good because we will reap eternal life in due time. Let's pray.